Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S. Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Politicus, a podcast by Palkus. My name is Angela Samoz, and I am here with my esteemed co-host, Dinesh Borges. How are you, Dinesh? It's been a while. It has been a while. Nice to see you and nice to be with you, uh, the most awesome uh, Palkus director in the whole <laughs> right. galaxy. Right. Well, you know, there's only one Palkus, so I don't know if there's more galaxy. Caucus <laughs> is in the galaxy, but yes, I appreciate that. So today I'm really excited about our guest. Our guest is Michael Rosinge. And I first learned about him when I saw the movie, which we will talk about in a little bit, uh, where the actor Mark Ruffalo portrayed him. And so I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. But so Mike Rosinge is an investigative reporter with a global investigations team at the Associated Press. Previously, he worked for the Boston Globe Spotlight team and shared a Pulitzer Prize for revealing the cover-up of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. He was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist twice, once in 2007 for an investigation of the debt collection industry, and again in 2017 for an expose of the mental health care system in Massachusetts. In addition, Mike shared a 2014 Pulitzer awarded to the Globe for its reporting on the bombing of the Boston Marathon. And Mike was running the marathon when the bombs exploded and worked into the night covering the tragedy. Mike is a co-author of two books, Betrayal, The Crisis in the Catholic Church, and Sin Against the Innocents, Sexual Abuse by Priests and the Role of the Catholic Church. In 2015, he was played by Mark Ruffalo in the Academy Award-winning movie, Spotlight, which is the movie that I referenced earlier. And so thank you, Mike, for joining us today. I, I, I think you're like our first celebrity really <laughs> on our show um it's such an honor to have you with us well really a pleasure to be here and a great opportunity for me as well excellent so let's just start out by having you give our listeners a bit about your background of course a little bit about your portuguese heritage and then why you chose to go into investigative journalism sure you know my grandfather my grandparents uh were from uh, san miguel and uh they and their various brothers and sisters and other relatives uh, moved uh, to Fall River, Massachusetts to work in the textile mills. And a lot of people don't remember this, but there was a time, and it was at that time, when Fall River, Massachusetts was the textile capital of the world. Uh, there were mills all over the city and thousands of people working in them. And that's, and that's the reason my, my grandparents, uh, and, and like I say, all their brothers and sisters came over was to work in the mills. And my family, my father and uh, my family, we moved to uh, New Haven, Connecticut. My father worked for the city government there. And uh, eventually I went to attend Boston University. And I was not a journalism student. I was an English major, but I did take a journalism class. And when I was too young, I dropped out of school to write a novel. And I had a few problems with it. And I thought, well, I needed to make a living, of course. And I read the papers voraciously. And I really liked politics. And I thought, well, maybe I can get a job as a newspaper writer and I'll be able to practice writing and indulge my interest in politics. And so I did. I started working at this small uh, rabble rousing neighborhood newspaper in a low income neighborhood in Boston, East Boston. The paper was called East Boston Community News. And we um, it was a shoestring operation. There was only one full time paid person. That was the editor, the volunteer reporters, volunteer photographers. And uh, we really made a difference in this community. 
Uh, we really uh, exposed uh, a lot of wrongdoing in East Boston. Big problem was the airport that was expanding into the neighborhoods. Uh, houses were being knocked down, parks were being paved wow. over. And so we were able to be a, a strong voice for the people of East Boston fighting airport expansion. And it was really great to be a part of that. And I learned so very much. You know, I learned about city government and state government and federal government because all of those entities came together at, at the airport. And so it was a great learning experience. And then I was I was basically hooked. I started volunteering there and I was still in college. And so I worked there for two years and I lived in the neighborhood. It was really inexpensive to live there. It was great for a college student. So uh, and then when I graduated, they offered me the job of editor. Wow. And so, <laughs> and so I like to say that journalism is a profession that chose me. Mm -hmm. I didn't choose it. it uh, you know, except for that one journalism class I took, I, I feel like it grabbed me by the throat and never let go. And so like I just kept going, you know, from one uh, newspaper to another. I worked for the alternative press. I worked, uh, went out to California to get into daily journalism. I worked for the Washington Post. And uh, the Boston Globe was really the only place I ever really, really wanted to work. And so finally, after many attempts, I got I got hired at the Globe and, you know, eventually I got on the spotlight team and was doing investigative reporting. And uh, when we won the Pulitzer Prize, I remember someone came up to me and said, gee, you've come a long way from the East Boston Community News. And I thought and I said, actually, I haven't. You know, at the East Boston Community News, I was doing the same kinds of mm -hmm. stories. I was doing investigative reporting. We just we just didn't call it that. And and the only real difference is, you know, at the Globe, I had. If I ever got sued, the Globe would defend me. But if we got sued at the East Boston Community News, we'd be in quite a bit of trouble. So I said, look, you know, I'm just doing the same thing all these years later. It's just that uh, I work for a bigger organization and I've gotten some recognition. So that's my that's my story. Uh, it certainly sounds like when you got hooked, it was the investigative part that hooked you, not just writing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah. still uh, I, I still consider myself a writer, but yes, it was uh, it was the investigative part of it, kind of the uh, the effort to uh, identify people who were doing bad things in the neighborhood, you know, and to come to, come to the defense of people who were victims of forces greater than themselves. You know, people were living in very noisy neighborhoods because the the airport hadn't had encroached on the neighborhood so very very intensely. And, you know, there was an arson problem and there was an illegal dumping problem. You know, the regular people just uh, this is, was a neighborhood under siege, really. And mm -hmm. so I really um, enjoyed the chance to just help uh, regular people uh, fight these very large, implacable, unfeeling forces. And uh, I guess that that's what you do as an investigative reporter. You know, you uh, you know, it's a cliche, but it is true. You know, we we comfort the afflicted and we afflict the comfortable. Indeed. Um, let me ask you a little bit about something that's in investigative journalism and in this world nowadays that we have the so-called citizen journalist with a, with an iPhone and, you know, and social media platforms that you can you know, put something out any time that you know, anything happens with continuous information, even from the major news sources just bombarding us constantly. How do you look at um, you've been after this uh, for? 
you know, a few years. How do you look, Michael, at um, investigative journalism today versus those first days in the Boston Globe and even before when you were uh, in a small, as you said, alternative press doing something that was already investigative journalism? You just didn't have the resources of the Boston Globe or any of the major newspapers. Is there room in and is there appetite in your perspective for investigative journalism in America when we're all kind of in an echo chamber, seems like, all the time? Yeah, I think investigative uh, journalism is more important than ever for that reason. I mean, what we have today, I mean, I, I could say a few things about citizen journalists. I'll get to it. I mean, some of that has been very, very good. And some and a lot of it is a real problem because it just adds to the, the noise. The noise. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, investigative journalism is more important than ever because in this new era of social media and noise, you know, what we have is really a lot of opinion. And uh, we have a great deal of uninformed opinion. We just have people Perfect. kind of mouth, mouthing off based on based on their emotions and first impressions and not based on an examination of the facts. So I think it's more important than ever that investigative reporters do their job and tell readers and listeners and viewers what the facts really are and what and what they amount to, what the truth really is. So I think I think there's really an increasingly essential role for investigative reporting today, whether it's at the Associated Press or the New York Times or uh, the little neighborhood newspaper that's trying to defend their their community against, uh, let's say, corporate expansion, things of that nature. Do you think that uh, the the small community newspapers that are being kind of bought up by conglomerates, I mean, that's what's happened here in certain parts of the area. I live in California. Yeah. We still have our local newspaper or community or small community south of Fresno. So, of course, the Fresno Bee is a known newspaper. But the other small community newspapers in towns of, you know, 55, 65,000 people are all bought by Gannett or by, you know, some major. Do you think that there's enough independence there for for investigative journalism or do they really have to rely on the on the big sources well i think uh, throughout america large swaths of america there's really a crisis in news right now because as you say a, a lot of these newspapers have been bought up by hedge funds or or companies like gannett and and uh strip the papers of their their resources, uh, their reporters. I mean, I think the Arizona Republic now has about 60 reporters to cover the entire state of Arizona, which is a which is a which, which is impossible. It, it's, uh, it's just not possible. So you have uh, huge sections of the country where there, there are no investigative reporters. There's barely any any news. There's barely any credible factual news because so many newspapers have, have literally shut down and the others are almost uh, not not functioning. You know, it's a handful of reporters and uh, the, the publishers are out trying to scrape some ads together for their for their corporate overseers. So. I think we do have a crisis in this country, and I, I think uh, the, the symptoms of this crisis is the partly is the, the incredible division we now have in this country, and um, you know the the echo chamber where you hear a lot of screaming and you hear a lot of noise and you hear a lot of opinion, but you don't have many facts, and it's destructive because you know as you know the only way a democracy works is if people participate in making decisions. You know, democracy works; it only works if people have good, solid information upon which to base their decisions about essentially who they're mm -hmm. going to vote for office, whether they're going to vote or not. But, you know, people, democracy can't function without information because uh, democracy can't function without people who participate. 
And if the people participating don't have reliable information, the whole system is subverted. So I think it's I think it's uh, it's a crisis. I think democracy is in crisis, and I think democracy is, is in crisis because the news is in crisis mm-hmm. because, because there there's so few sources of of credible information. I mean, fine, it's all fine and good to read the New York Times or the Washington Post, fine, but you know uh, I don't think the Washington Post is going to have very much to say about the objective conditions in, let's say, you know, Akron, Ohio, or Tulsa, uh-huh. or Tulsa, Oklahoma. In fact, uh, they're not going to have very much to say about about large swaths of this country where 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 most people live. So, no, I don't think we can rely on the large uh, news organizations. Um, I mean, the Associated Press. What I like about it is we have rep- we have reporters uh, all over the country. I mean, we're the only organization. We have a reporter in every state legislature in the country, and there's no other news organization that can say that. Uh, in fact, many newspapers have abandoned beats like the state legislatures, which is so essential to democracy. So, so overall, I think uh, we aren't in a crisis. Uh, democracy is in a crisis because we have a crisis of, of uh, news. We have a crisis of credible information. Just a quick question, Angela, follow up on Associated Press, just really quick, because it always has fascinated me. I'm, I'm from the time of the AP, you know, coming over on the wire when I used to work at a radio station yeah. and, and UPI and all of that and, and all of that. But uh, is the Associated Press, of course, still kind of the main source for some of these smaller newspapers and some of these smaller news organizations, whether they be in radio, television or print? that cannot have a reporter at the Sacramento state legislature, but can, you know, through the subscription and through their affiliation with AP can bring that to their readers. How important you feel about that? Obviously you work there, but what is your thoughts on that objectively, of course? Yeah, I feel, I feel that's really important. That's a great uh, service that Associated Press provides, because as you say, <clears throat> a lot of these uh, news organizations that remain, you know, they they have very few reporters. To, they they cannot cover the state legislature or a lot of other beats. So I think they do rely on the Associated Press. Uh, you know, we can't do it all by any stretch of the imagination. We can't replace that. But we do certainly help. And, you know, the coverage of the state legislatures is one is one uh, area. You know, even in a place like Boston, you know, I remember when I was a young reporter, you would go into the press room in the state house. And if there was a big event going on, maybe the governor was giving a speech or something like that, uh, you couldn't find you couldn't find a desk in the press room. You know, it was it was jammed. And if you go in there today, it's it's empty. You know, there's there's like one or two reporters and that's it. And it's it's very it's not just sad, but it's it's really troubling because it means that all the newspapers that used to be represented by the, the, the all the reporters that used to be crowded into that room, they're not there. You know, they're not covering what their elected officials are doing every day. And it's a problem. How are how are citizens, how are voters supposed to make a decision about who, who should serve an elective office if they're not getting information about what their representatives are doing? So that's just a, a physical manifestation, a physical observ, uh, observable phenomenon that, mm-hmm. that attests to this crisis. And then that's where these citizen journals like YouTubers or people who have TikTok channels are filling the gap, right? Because they're yeah. just going out there, taking video and really not with the, I guess, proper training or objectivity to report the facts. You know, they probably have a, a biased slant, right? So then that contributes to misinformation, right? And yeah. so then that, that leads me to... Palkas actually hosted a series of webinars over the past, I want to say, eight months about media literacy. And we talked about, 
you know, where people, both here in the U.S. and in Portugal, and then especially like the Portuguese community here, like where people are getting their information, which sources do they trust? And then how do you really figure out if what you're reading is true or not? Like, how do you start to vet the information? And as you say, you know, investigative journalism, I think, is even more important these days. But typically, those pieces tend to be long, right? Yeah. And our attention spans are a lot shorter these days. So I'm curious, are you seeing a change in how investigative journalism is being reported in terms of, are you having to like kind of chop it up into little bits or are you adding video to it? Like, how are you able to convey the good work that you are doing in a way that people will actually consume it? Otherwise, they're going to read the first two paragraphs and then I got to run on to the next thing. I'm curious. Okay, so there's, there's a lot there to discuss, but I want to congratulate you on the media literacy program. I think that's that's really Thank important. You. I mean, I I can't tell you how many people I personally know who you know they just read something on the internet and they assume it's true. And so just crazy, right? Just because it's on the internet, and they don't yeah. understand that the the internet has a lot of propaganda on it. You know, there there are people publishing things on on the internet for selfish either either for a profit motive or uh, or or a political motive but what you're what you're seeing a lot of the time is just pure blatant propaganda some of it comes from overseas you know mm-hmm. I mean, some of it's manufactured by uh, russia some of it's manufactured by china i mean these are these are aggressive attempts by other countries to divide americans and get them hating one another so, and to weaken our country uh, so it's 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 very very uh, serious. So mm-hmm. I, from the bottom of my heart, I congratulate you on media literacy. Thank you, thank you. I'll send you the links if you're interested. Yeah. In, you know, please, please do. Now, just a couple of other things. I think some of your assumptions about what people want to read are, are, are not correct. And okay. uh, I'll give you an example. You know, we now have this uh, technology. You know, we have it at the Associated Press. We had it at the Boston Globe, and the technology allows us to see which stories are read the most and which stories get the greatest engagement time. In other words, right now, and I used to do this, this came in while I was at the Boston Globe, this technology, but you can go to this website and you can see every story in the Boston Globe in the, in, in the current edition, today's edition, you know, online, you know, we put most of our readers are online and you can see exactly how many people are reading each story. I mean, to the number. And you can see, um, what, and then there's there's an average engagement time, which tells you, are, are, are people just glancing at the headline and moving on, or are they actually reading the story? And, and then there's a, a way that you can also tell when somebody subscribes online, you can see what is the last story they read before they subscribe. So you can also see which stories are driving subscriptions. And, you know, on the Spotlight team, we write these stories that are 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 words long. And I got to tell you, when this technology was announced, I was really scared. You know, um, <laughs> I thought. I imagine <laughs> it's a long uh, article. I thought, oh my God, the truth is going to come out. No one's reading our stories. You know? <laughs> we're, we're, we're doomed. There's not going to be a spotlight team after a year. This is really bad. And uh, it was the opposite. Oh, that's the, encouraging. The opposite. I mean, I can tell you, and this is a matter of, this is a pure fact. Uh, that's verified by data. Whenever a spotlight story comes out, it is the number one read story, and it has the longest engagement time. And that's very uh, encouraging. And also, it seemed that even when, like, sometimes they're very long stories that were well written, 
that were not necessarily investigative, just feature stories. People wanted to read those too. And what we found that what we found that people really wanted was investigative reporting, really well-written long stories, and they liked the quick, the quick short news briefs as well. What they really didn't care for was, was what we we're spending most of our time doing, which is these um, sort of medium, medium length stories about you know, what happened in the courts today, kind of kind of not that those stories don't have value, but you know, the lesson was, wow, people really want investigative reporting. And wow, people really like long, well-written feature stories. So, so uh, that I just want to, you know, put that out there because uh-huh. it was such a, I mean, look, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time and I was, you know, pleasantly amazed. And, you know, the same thing's true at the Associated Press. You know, you have an investigative story, you have something that that nobody knows, you know, that you have something that nobody's heard of before, that nobody's read before. It's it's new, it's interesting, you're exposing wrongdoing. People really do want that. Now that said, uh, we do now publish our stories, uh, we, we call it in multiple formats. In other words, there's very often a vi- there's almost always a video component that goes along uh-huh. with the story. Uh-huh. And the video it varies. It, it might be, you know, kind of a summary of the story, or it might be something that's uh, in addition to the story. But there's almost always a video component. Uh, we like to do uh, visual data, you know, charts and graphs and things. And and we like uh, and some of those now are sophisticated. You know, they 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 move. It's not just a static thing. You know, we can we can show you how something works with with movement, with moving lines and, and that sort of thing. And so, uh, and we have, uh, they're often uh, interactive uh, graphics where if it's, if it's a national story, like for instance, um, we did some stories about the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, Coronavirus Relief Aid. And uh, the, the investigative story was basically how, how we did one where how businesses were, were scamming it. You know, the, it's supposed to be for small business, but Shake Shack was getting this money. And and we also did uh, a big piece on all the all the money the Catholic Church was grabbing. The Catholic Church, of course, pays no taxes. It's a very wealthy institution, and yet they were taking billions of dollars in coronavirus relief aid. So, but my point is that we localized the data, so you could see who got the Paycheck Protection Program money in in your area, your zip code, or you know you could look up your your archdiocese and see oh. how much see how much uh, money they got in coronavirus relief aid from, through the Paycheck Protection Program. So we do these, uh, you're right, we, have, we tell the story, we call it multiple formats. Uh-huh. And, uh, but but to, to my earlier point, people, people do want to read uh, well done investigative reporting, even if it's, it's 5,000 words long. Um, That's very encouraging. I, I really truly was not aware, um, just, you know, I guess maybe thinking of the younger generations that is just, you know, not really reading lots of things that well, they're just watching you know, videos of everything. Well, there now, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the other question is, uh, who is, who is reading it? In other words, mm-hmm. uh, you have, yeah, spotlight story is, is the, the number one red story, but you know, bre- I don't know. How do you break that down demographically? I mean, who, you know, what's the, is it people over 40? Is it people over 30? Mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't think it's people between 15 and 25. You know, uh-huh. so so, uh, so that's part of this this complicated picture. You know, may, maybe you're right. Maybe young people aren't reading it. Um, right. Maybe that's true. But I, you know, I think um, I don't get too worried about that because you know I I just don't think people become engaged citizens until they're like they're maybe older, they're thirty yeah. 
and they're uh-huh. you know, they're going to get married, and they 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 you know they might have kids, and so suddenly they want to know, well, you know, who how's my taxpayer money being paid, and you know what's, what's going, going on with the school district, what's going, yeah. on, what's going on with the schools? Hey, wait a minute, you know how do I find? Uh-huh. Let me you know what's going on here. Let me find out. So that's when I think people start reading papers like the Boston Globe. It's you know they have a reason to be engaged with the system. And so mm-hmm. they start looking for for hard information. So if someone, you know, 20 years old is just on TikTok and not really reading the Boston Globe. Well, you know, that's life. You know, I think, you know, when I was, you know, 20 years old before social media, I don't think any of my friends were I reading wasn't. the Globe either. I wasn't either. <laughs> you know, so I don't think that's especially new or, or worrisome. What is worrisome and new is that when people do get in their late 20s and want to be responsible citizens, they find that they can't get any information about what's going on in their communities. Mm-hmm. That's true. Let me, uh, uh, in the few minutes that we have left, uh, Michael, a couple of questions. And I and I do want, before we uh, leave also, to talk to you a little bit about the conference in the Azores, because I'd like you to mention that to our to sure. our listeners. But misinformation, of course, uh, kind of shapes, and you talked already a little about that. And we have an election coming up. We are actually in an election cycle. It seems like we're never off of an election cycle. They yeah. become longer and longer, or have at least in the last 20 plus years. Can uh, can we have a free and fair election system if the press doesn't do what it needs to do? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. And the answer is no. You know, we, we, we cannot have we cannot have fair elections <clears throat> if if news organizations don't do their job. <clears throat> the answer is no, we cannot. News organizations have to ferret out the truth. They have to give voters uh, the facts and the truth. And that does not mean, and this is this is more difficult than ever because of because of frankly, because of Donald Trump, this is more difficult than ever. Uh, you can't just have a camera on both candidates for equal for an equal amount of time. You are not going to get the truth that way. If one candidate is uh lying over and over again, saying things that simply are not true, well, then that that tends to tell voters that those things are true. So what in that in that situation. A uh, news organization is is perpetuating a lie. You become pulled into the system of lies, and that's incredibly dangerous. I mean, if our news organizations are helping people for their own reasons uh, to lie, then we have a very very serious problem. And news organizations are not doing their job. News organizations have to say, no, this is not true. There is no there is no backup for this statement. Either there's no backup, or it, it's demonstrably a lie. It's demonstrably a lie. And it's our job to do that. And, you know, the system of covering the system of news organizations covering, say, presidential elections, it was not built. It was not built for this election. It was not built for a candidate who was trying to destroy the system. It was not built for a candidate who was going to lie at every opportunity. Uh, You know, this is a this is a new challenge for news organizations and a serious challenge. And, you know, reporters now have to have to work to do their jobs correctly. It's no longer a situation where you can just show up and, you know, see your friends from the previous campaign and write write a story based on what everybody says and then go back to your hotel room and have a have a beer. You know, that's not what's going on now. Uh, Now, you know, you, you really have to do some work to find out what are the facts and make sure you're not allowing your news organization to be a megaphone for lies. Mm-hmm. And piggybacking off that, as a reporter, how do you determine or verify that your sources have, you know, their actual facts that it's the truth, right? Because I'm I'm sure that there are lots of sources out there that claim to have the facts 
But once you dig a little bit, you discover that, you know, they are in fact not. So I, not that you need to just, you know, describe your process or anything like that. But I mean, how do you really figure out which sources you're going to use and which ones you aren't so that you are reporting what you feel is the truth? Well, through through many means. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, you might write a story and find out after the fact that someone someone lied to you mm. and, and used you to further that lie, to spread that lie. Well, are you going to talk to that person again? Well, you might. You might have to. But you're going to view what they say with a great deal of skepticism. Uh, you know, it's this is no longer a situation where uh, you can write down. Sometimes you're on deadline. And you're in a group of reporters, the news is a competitive business, and sometimes you really have no choice but to just write what people are saying or to broadcast what people are saying. But now we have this added responsibility to go back and vet it and see if it was really true or not. And if we find out it's not true, then there's just, you, there's an obligation to do a second story and say, right. hey, you know, hey, this candidate said X on Monday, and uh, it's now Thursday, and we've determined that that's not true. And here's here's what the facts are. Here's what the truth is. So uh, this is a this is really a challenge for news reporters covering political beats. And uh, it comes at a time when news organizations are are weakened. And I think the people who are trying to use news organizations to spread lies and that and propaganda, and that's what they're doing. They know that, that news organizations are weakened and they're trying to take advantage of that. So it's a very, very challenging time, and it's very challenging to be covering uh, elections right now, uh, and it's work. It's you know used to be you got on the, you know everyone remembers uh, there was a book called The Boys on the Bus uh, years ago, and it was about covering basically how much fun it was to cover a presidential campaign, and you know it's not fun anymore. It's work. Sure, indeed, and the demonization of journalism, uh, journalists, and and news sources seems to work in America. I mean, you know, it's the profession that people love to hate, seems like. Uh, and it's a needed profession that we need. As you said, democracies do not function without information. Right. Well, this is honestly, you know, this is part of the plan. I mean, if you if you call journalists the enemy of the American people and no one listens to journalists, then you're free to spread your lies. Right. Sure. sure. Uh, you know, because if you if you discredit journalism, then you can just lie with impunity. So it, it, it's, it's not an accident that Donald Trump was called reporters, the enemy of the American people. He's a very smart guy, very, very smart. And uh, there's a reason he says that. He wants everybody to think that so, that so that he is the only source, so that he can lie with impunity. That's what's happening here. Let's turn to the A source. Uh, it's a happier place. <laughs> and to your family's roots, of course, as you mentioned right at the beginning. In April of uh, this uh, this last April, you were able you were at a journalist conference. It was actually the very first journalist conference in like 40 years in the Azores. They had had one in the beginning of the 1980s when journalism was uh, flourishing in the Azores after the 1974 revolution. And the, uh, and the region became an autonomous region of Portugal. But then nothing happened for 40 years until this uh, group of journalists, um, young and not so young, decided, and you were one of the guests of honors and, and very well received. And of course, I could tell you that uh, I was happy to be there a day or two before and everyone talked about when is Hazendas going to get here. And so, <laughs> and you were there and, and it was a very informative talk. How did you feel about as a Pulitzer uh, 
Prize winner and someone who, as you know, and then this is not, you know, in, in any way, shape, or form to be vain about it. But in the Azores, people look to you as a, as a, as an icon, as a in journalism, in American journalism, and in journalism in general. It's a very small region, two hundred fifty thousand people. It has a wonderful, uh, I mean, Ponte Delgada with what fifty thousand inhabitants, more or less fifty five to sixty thousand, has uh, you know three daily newspapers, which is unheard of. Uh, yeah. But the Azores have been this, you know. A lot of times people say, oh, the Azores people don't read, but they do read because any region that still has of 250,000 people that still has five daily newspapers printed, not just online, but printed. Somebody's reading them, obviously. How did you feel about this whole process? And was what was it like to look at some of the issues? And did you discover some issues that probably you were not aware that the Azores has to deal with? Yeah, I, I, I did, but I actually, uh, unfortunately, in a way, but but uh, but first, uh, it was really a, a pleasure to be there, and I'm I'm certainly happy if people want to regard me as a role model. I I would be well. You know, you, well, you are the Azores. I know that for a fact. I, I would be I would be happy to be a role model and and to to help inspire people to do great journalism. And you know, I felt. Um, I really understood, I think, uh, the problems of local journalists there, because, as I said earlier, you know, I started my career at a very small newspaper that did not have any money. And uh, nevertheless, we found ways to make a difference in our community by by reporting the news and getting the facts. So I sympathize. I mean, at, at my newspaper, we we really did have uh, spaghetti suppers and we had all kinds of all kinds of wacky fundraisers. And, and in the meantime, we'd have big arguments about whether to take ads from, you know, the churches always wanted to run ads for bingo. And people were saying, no, gambling is terrible. Or, you know, there's, it's, you know, there's gambling addiction. And we, other people were saying, no, we, we need the money and it's from the church. What's your problem? And so, so we would have these, uh, you know, big debates about whether to take essentially nickels and dimes. But, you know, I, I understand it. I understand it. And, and, uh, and I was happy to and be involved in some discussions about how local news can uh, survive and, and thrive. So I felt like I was among my 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 peers and I felt like I was among my countrymen. And so um, and I do have uh, family in San Miguel. And so I felt, uh, you know, at home in many ways. And I uh, really, really enjoyed the experience. Indeed, I know we're coming up on the time, and I know Angela would like to either, but I wanted, I just, I'm curious of one thing. When is the novel coming out, or did the novel come out? Because I don't remember the novel. I remember the, the other books that you've been involved with. The novel that you mentioned at the beginning that you were going to write. Started. That started oh. this whole process, so. Well, uh, it's coming. <laughs> okay, good. All right, I'll put it down. I'll put it down. <laughs> I want to be the first to read it. Thanks, Michael. Just uh, building a little bit off of the Azores experience, I'm curious, any kind of differences or similarities that you've observed between U.S. media and foreign press, whether it be in Portugal or, or other countries that you've observed? Not uh, with with Portugal and the Azores. I mean, I've been to Lisbon a few I mean, I gave a speech in, in Lisbon in 2017 to the to the Congress of Portuguese Journalists. And I met a, I've met a lot of very fine Portuguese journalists. I, I wrote an article for Sabadou magazine hmm. in 2016 about the presidential race here in America. So I have met um, and, and some of them were at the conference in the Azores, you know, some some really very talented, fine journalists working in, in uh, Portugal right now in the, on the mainland. And so, uh, no, you know, Portugal is a democracy and it's got its troubles and just like we do here in the United uh -huh. States. 
I think I think uh, journalism in in Portugal uh, and in the Azores, as far as I could tell, functions with the same goals, the same ideals, same set of uh, responsibilities as uh, journalism here in the U.S. I felt there was more in common than than there was that that is different. That's great. Well, as we come to our the end of uh, of our episode, what would be some of your words of advice or guidance for anyone that is either thinking of getting into journalism, investigative journalism, or starting their own YouTube channel, or, you know, uh, seeing a need to report on, on things happening, whether it's in their local community or in the world, maybe they're in journalism school, maybe they're not, who knows, but we're, we're always looking for ways to encourage our young people and, and people in the community in general to, you know, take, take a leap, take a, take a risk and pursue something, you know, that you have a passion about, maybe you're a little apprehensive, but, you know, don't let fear get in your way. So any words of advice? Well, that was pretty good. I mean, I would just tell people, you know, keep going, don't give up, work with what you have, you know, have faith, keep going, work with what you have. I think that's, that's fair. That's very good. <laughs> that's what well, I told myself. <laughs> hey, hey, if it works for you to keep you going, then it's got to work. Um, well, this has been great. I feel like there were a lot of things where we could have had offshoot conversations oh, and gone definitely. for another hour. And so maybe we will, maybe we'll have a few sure. more episodes and, <clears throat> and really drill down on some of these topics, especially as we get into, you know, further down the election cycle and, and, you know, how, as things uh, play out, but it has been such a pleasure, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I've really enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks for having me. Thank you thank so much. You. I appreciate it. Seeing you again. Okay. And, and thank you to our listeners out there for joining us on, an, on another episode of Politicus. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you did, please share with your family and friends. Subscribe to our, our YouTube channel, whether that's on Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes. And of course, please leave us a review on iTunes specifically. Uh, it will help more folks in the community discover us join the conversation and it will just help us all become better and stronger. So thank you all. And until next time. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about Palcus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. Palcus, P-A-L-C-U-S dot org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palcus at palcus dot org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palcus.